How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I think the last one I did was House. House? Was it House? I think so. So like Halloween? Because yeah. that was right that was right before Halloween. Yeah. yeah. I think so. Yeah. Jesus been on the other um, side of the how is it world. i'm in this i'm on this podcast and when you said house i had to like think about it. i was like did we do house like the uh, doctor show <laughs> <laughs> i thought you were gonna go with like the uh like the the horror movie the um the what is it for the i think fred decker wrote it maybe you know the you know which one i'm talking about the tom uh, holland horror movie oh, oh yeah uh, yeah 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 no that's great. good and it's a great movie uh, we probably will cover it one day, but we have yeah, not yet. That makes sense to do. And then the second one is is bananas. Yeah, it is. Yeah. The second story, House Two, the second story. It's called. Yeah. Because oh, it's, yeah. it's a play. Because <laughs> it's, it's like both. the houses, it's stories, but it's also a story. You Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait. What? Uh, it's honestly the best possible name for a sequel to House. And uh, I missed you guys. <laughs> Welcome we, back, Todd. We missed back. you too, Todd. Um, anyway, uh, oh, wait, I could do this. I could do this. Uh, well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult genre films. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the three guys that tell you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them. So the next time you're in a nerdy, moody movie. Nerdy movie conversation. You almost did it. <laughs> Leave it in. Uh, yeah. Not only will you know what's going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of the hosts, Gary Horde. And I'm your other host, Justin Bishop. And I'm writer comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. Thank you for joining us for a very special roulette episode. Quick question. Uh, you guys want to know what I did in the UK? Well, you I mean, we've been talking for like 20 minutes here, so I already know a lot of it. And our I, and and here and here's the thing, our listeners. Don't care. Yeah. Well, it's 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 movie it's movie specific. So. Oh, okay. You, you guys want to know what I did in the UK? Oh, then yes. Okay, please tell us, Todd. Pork did buns. You... What? That, that's the <laughs> that's the first line of Once Upon a Time in China's pork buns. Oh, so you oh. ate pork buns? No, I just wanted to yell pork buns. What? <laughs> what does this have to I don't do even with your trip to where the UK? This... Yeah, where is this going, uh, Todd? <laughs> writer. Um, Capital C comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis, is back with us, ladies and gentlemen. He's been gone since Halloween, uh, minus a couple of uh, bonus episodes, a little Todd, some little Todd casting episodes that he he phoned in from the UK. But uh, and by and by phoned in, I mean that in multiple ways. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I I'm personally happy you're back, Todd. It takes a lot of pressure off me, like just to just start spitting out facts, and I've got to be interested for a whole hour and a half by myself. Got to pretend I, to be interested. I am so happy to be back to be the bottom of this totem pole. Uh, um, you know, I always thought you were a bottom, Todd. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nobody stands in shit like I do. <laughs> I don't. This is going a lot of different directions. It sure is. Yeah, we went in pork <laughs> buns. <laughs> is that really the first line to this movie? Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, I believe you. I'm. Not, you know, I didn't. It, yeah. It, I mean, I think it was because it's it's the slow pan down to the city, and I think there's like merchants doing their thing. But the first line of closed caption dialogue is pork buns. Hey, so you know when what? That, when that came oh, up on the screen, I died. I was just like, yeah, that's I'm gonna scream that on the I wish I had pork buns right now. They're delicious. Anyway, <laughs> so for the final entry in this whole cinema shock roulette extravaganza thing that we've been going on for the last couple of months, uh, which we did because Todd was not here, so we didn't want to get into a whole like long form series without Todd, but he is here. Uh, he got back in time for us to do this last one along with him. We'll announce the next series at the end of this episode, but for this one. Uh, the final entry in this series, uh, we're once again veering away from American shores to discuss an iconic Hong Kong martial arts film, one that is steeped in the history of its country, features a legendary Chinese folk hero as portrayed by one of the most famous martial artists of all time, is directed by one of Hong Kong's most notable and popular filmmakers, uh, one that spawned a franchise consisting of six films and almost single-handedly revitalized the period martial arts film craze of the 1990s. Today, we are talking about Once Upon a Time in China. In an exotic land, in a time of revolution, one man's courage changed a nation forever. Columbia TriStar Home Video proudly invites you to return to one of the most celebrated action films of all time, Once Upon a Time in China. The first in a remarkable trilogy that thrust action star Jet Li into international superstardom. Starring as the legendary hero, Wang Fei Hong, Jet Li brings to life a man whose courage was surpassed only by his skills in the film that set the standard for martial arts excellence by which all others are compared i don't know if it says anything about the movie but uh whenever you google once upon a time in china and or even imdb or anywhere really they really try to push once upon a time in hollywood on you like they're like are you sure you didn't mean once upon a time in Hollywood. Yeah. Well, and also once upon a time in the West and once upon a time in, uh, in America, we're both around before once upon a time in Hollywood, but I guess it's just the most popular once upon, and a, once time. upon a time and once upon a time in Mexico. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which is less popular, but it was around yeah. for a while anyway. And the, and the TV show once upon a time. What? Yeah. Not yes. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> anyway, I just ta- I, listen. I, that's what I bring to the show. Stuff you're good. Well, yeah, it's technically yeah, correct. Cur- yeah, yeah, cur- yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, Todd, I know you're itching to do us. We haven't done spoiler warnings really this whole time you've been gone, other than just saying, what? "Hey, we're going to be talking about spoilers." But we didn't do the well the way that we did spoiler warnings. Todd, people actually knew they were a spoiler warning, and that they, they were. <laughs> 
<laughs> we could have just said, "Hey, we're going to talk about spoilers." <laughs> hey, we're gonna we're talking about this movie, and there are going to be spoilers. So it's a very clear line of communication between us and the listener, as opposed to a more abstract form of communication that you bring to the show. Uh, but I know you're itching to do one for this, and please, um, please don't do a weird. If, please, please do not do a racist accent when you do. <laughs> no, 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 it, no, no, ra- no racist accents. If anything, I'll go ahead and I'll put it on Front Street. If anything, I'm making fun of dubbing. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> Have at it. All right. Here we go. Aha. Uh-huh. My master told me you would be here. Oh. Therefore, I will give you one opportunity to stop listening to this episode of the podcast, or you will leave me no choice but to force our spoiler style into your ears. Huh? Oh, the choice is yours. Weird that you were able to get your mouth to move differently uh, than the words during that entire time. It's very I also love the facials that the people will never see. That's weird. Man, Todd's getting facials, Todd's bottoming, like we ever... We we've been introduced to a whole new Mr. Todd A. Davis on this Available episode. Available for parties, <laughs> bar mitzvahs, corporate events. Little di- little disappointed the spoiler warning wasn't all in Cantonese, but I know. I thought <laughs> Todd's been <laughs> on vacation. He didn't have time to learn Cantonese. <laughs> Don't think I didn't think about it. <laughs> no, 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 no. I can't do that. I'm so tired. <laughs> so the, the the man who shepherded the Once Upon a Time in China series was director Choi Hawk. He would end up directing three of the films in the series, but he kind of presided over all of them. Uh, and I will go ahead and say, I'm just like I said in our Possession episode, I'm going to do my damnedest to uh, pronounce names correctly. I will honestly probably have an easier time than I did with the Polish names in that film. But I was I was literally uh, about to say the same <laughs> thing, that the, uh, we're, we're going to struggle with names again, but it's... Oddly, the Polish stuff was way more difficult. Like they didn't have letters that existed. Right. Right. Exactly. At least these were reading the like, I don't know what you call it, but like the the westernized version of the name. So it's like, at least it's made up of the alphabet that we recognize as opposed to things with weird dots and circles and slashes through L's and like all this stuff that those (laughs) Polish names had no offense to the Polish people. There have been plenty enough jokes made about you over the years. We are not going to make another one, (laughs) but we are going to do well, not with that attitude. Come on. (laughs) We're going to do our best. So anyway, Choi Hawk born Choi Man Kong in Saigon in 1950s. He was born in Vietnam, but he is of Chinese ethnicity. Uh, But Choi grew up in a large family with 16 siblings, which sounds miserable. (laughs) But but he did. He showed an interest in show business at a pretty early age when he was about 10 years old. He and some of his friends rented an eight millimeter camera where we heard this story before. Uh, And they, they used it to film a magic show that they were putting on at school. So that was kind of his first foray into filmmaking and he was hooked then when he was 13 years old Choi's family immigrated to hong kong where he'd spend his formative years before heading actually to the united states for college Uh, in the u.s he studied film in texas uh, first at southern methodist university and then at the university of texas in austin graduating in 1975 and it was kind of around this time that he changed his name to hawk which translates to overcoming he changed it because the students teased him about his name. They would call him King Kong. Um, that's a great they, nickname, honestly. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, that's actually said, pretty awesome. They said, King Kong's got a big old ding dong. 
And that's that, also not an insult. insult. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Yeah. I don't know. I was trying to think of like, what could they say that makes that bad? I don't know. King Kong doesn't sound terrible. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, there's a whole wrestler with that went a whole career with that name, right? I saw a yeah, picture King of him. I saw a picture of him this morning when he had hair. It was very weird. It's a weird experience to be seeing King Kong Bundy with hair, a full head of hair. <laughs> very strange. Anyway, that's off off putting. Yeah, <laughs> it's off subject. But anyway, so after graduating college, Choi moved to New York City, where he worked on a documentary film about the history of New York's Chinatown. Uh, and if you have, by the way, if you have the Once Upon a Time in China uh, collection from the Criterion uh, collection, that box set actually has this Chinatown documentary on it that he worked on, which is a, kind of a cool little historical record. Uh, also, while he was in New York, he worked as an editor for a Chinese newspaper. He developed a community theater group and worked in a Chinese cable t- TV station. And then he would end up returning to Hong Kong a couple of years later in 1977. So when he returned to Hong Kong, Choi turned his attention to filmmaking, where he quickly became known as a key member of Hong Kong's new wave of filmmakers. This this kind of like up and coming younger filmmakers who were kind of doing things their own way, you know. Uh, His debut film, 1979's The Butterfly Murders, blended wuxia with a murder mystery and science fiction fantasy elements, while his follow-up called We're Going to Eat You, which was released in 1980, was a blend of cannibal horror, dark comedy, and martial arts. It sounds like Evil Dead with karate. (laughs) Yeah, but his and his early stuff is is I haven't seen any of those early ones, Mm. uh, but I've seen a few other of his films outside of this series. Not not a ton, but a couple. Uh, But I haven't seen any of those early ones. But from what I've read, they're a lot more like nihilistic and dark compared to the stuff that he would become known for later Mm. on. Okay. So in 1981. He joined uh, Cinema City, which was this production company that was founded by comedians Raymond Wong, Carl Maka, and Dean Sheck. So at a time when Mandarin language martial arts films were flooding the market, Cinema City sought to produce Chinese language comedies. And then for a brief period of time, the films that were produced by Cinema City dominated at the box office, and they were instrumental in popularizing the slick Hong Kong blockbusters of the 1980s. And you, and you said Chinese language. You meant like Cantonese language. There. I, I did. I, was... I'm sorry. Yes, I, I misspoke. I have Cantonese language written down. But yes, they uh, Mandarin language martial arts films were the, the the ones that were being produced the most. They were the most popular. And Cinema City wanted to produce films, similar films, but in Cantonese. Yeah, they would use like uh, Cantonese, like pop songs and stuff, and a lot of their stuff they were doing and uh, just trying to popular. Because I don't know if. People don't know this about China, but it's a it's a large place. So there's Very a large, lot going on. A lot of people. different languages. And uh, so it's interesting. There's a whole other audience for this. Uh, yeah. And Cantonese and Mandarin, I guess, do not closely work together. And so uh, it's kind of interesting. He was part of this group called the Gang of Seven. I, w- I was just reading a little bit about that. And they they kind of killed it throughout the 80s uh, yeah. uh, doing their thing. And um I was reading about their process. Like you would say, they would just like go to this person's house, sit in a circle, and they would like. I used to do this in high school with another buddy of mine. I got to find these, but boy, they would like start a story and like tell part of the story, and then the next person would go and like keep going with the story, and then the next person would go, and they would just try to come up with new ideas and stuff that way. But uh, is that is that how they started. were doing like sort of like workshopping stories for movies? Like that, I think that so. Sort of that's the, the way first it step came in across. their in their like screenwriting process, sort of. That that's how it came across to me. Yeah, they that's were cool. like uh, just working off of each other. Well, that's that, I mean that kind of goes along with you know the comedians. If if those comedians were working 
with a lot of improv training, that's a, that's an improv game. You know, one person starts the story and they've got, you know, such and such amount of time and then it passes to the next person. So Choi directed his breakout film in 1983 with the wuxia fantasy film Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain, which was produced for the legendary studio Golden Harvest. Uh, and when he made that movie, he hired special effects technicians, guys who had worked on Star Wars, to bring the, the uh, fifth century locations of the film to life, featuring the types of special effects that were really unprecedented in Chinese language filmmaking at that time. We can talk about, I mean, we've talked about Bruce Lee a bunch before, like Golden Harvest. I mean, these guys, we, we mentioned... We've talked about them before, too. We'll, we'll talk about them again. But he, they'd kind of snatched this guy up. They they were doing that with like Bruce Lee. They did that with him. They did that with Jackie Chan. You mentioned uh, that the, the special effects that were happening here were unprecedented in the Ch in Chinese language filmmaking. It was a weird thing going on there. Like this, this movie is considered like it essentially launched uh, the Hong Kong special effects industry. Yeah. Um, I was reading an interview with Choi where he talks about that, like they they had been kind of special effects have been kind of untouchable before all of this. Uh, this interview was with uh, the Hong Kong Film Archive, but he says, uh, "quote This subject was brought up again with someone says special effects are for foreigners, not for the Chinese." I started questioning that. Why are Chinese so resistant to technology? Is it a race issue, technology issue, economics issue, an issue with intellect, or do Chinese film genres not involve special effects? So he he goes on, you know, and he recruits a bunch of people we'll talk about. But he he kind of built this thing from scratch, and uh, it was just kind of neat. Uh, the only bad part of it was is I think nobody really knew how to do this process in, in yeah. China. It's, yeah. So it was kind of a drawn out like thing, and production took forever. Golden Harvest really wanted him, so they worked with him. So it wasn't them that was the problem. But he he talks about being really stressed out here, and he ends up. Uh, going right back to Cinema City right after this and not staying with Golden Harvest. He'll make it up in a little bit. Yeah. But. <laughs> <laughs> and if you have not seen Zoo Warriors from Magic Mountain, I highly recommend it. Uh, it is a wild, wild movie. It is nothing like really this movie. It's more, it's more wuxia. Not, it's very much a like a fantasy film with special effects that will for for Western audiences for us especially uh, will definitely bring to mind. John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China, which I think probably cribbed a lot of stuff from that movie. Uh, but imagine all of the like wacky, like uh, lightning effects and things like that, that you, you get in the John Carpenter movie, uh, but in a movie that's actually faster paced than John Carpenter's and doesn't, you know, obviously, a lot less white people, but it's... <laughs> But it's a it's a really cool movie. I would highly recommend checking it out. Maybe we'll talk about it one day on the show. You know, if we uh, that's that'd be a good one to throw on the the roulette wheel. I, I have a question about because um, you you've said it a couple times, and I don't know that I specifically know the the term. What is wuxia? Wuxia is a I don't I don't know exactly how to define it. I know it when I see it. Crouching tiger, hidden dragon. That that type of martial arts. That that subgenre that uh, of martial arts film that Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon kind of occupies, uh, which you know it, it's set in like it's typically set in a certain time period, and I don't know enough about Chinese history to be able to tell you exactly when. A lot of it features a lot of wire work as well. I was about to say uh, wire work, wire is work big on it. almost yeah. kind of like. Well, I I don't want to jump too far ahead into my thoughts on this film, but like I I see, I see what you're saying. Like if that's kind of the 
this and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, things like that. Iron Monkey, I imagine. Iron Monkey, yeah, which um, is a, a fantastic movie. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That makes more sense. So after he left Cinema City, Choi founded the production company Film Workshop with Nansun Shi, which Gary, who Gary mentioned earlier. She was a film producer who would later become Choi's wife. With the founding of Film Workshop, the most prolific period of Choi's career began. Not only with the films he directed himself, but those that he produced as well. Because uh, Choi Hawk is a big, big-time producer. Not just a big-time director, but a big, big-time producer in Hong Kong cinema. The films coming out of Film Workshop were consistent hits at the box office in Hong Kong and all around Asia, earning Choi the nickname the Steven Spielberg of Asia. Wow. Uh, and during this time, and that's not just because it was that they were financially successful but they were innovative in their use of special effects and things like that much like steven spielberg was especially throughout the 70s and 80s so during this time period Choi produced classics such as john woo's a better tomorrow uh and the killer and ching seeing uh ching su tons a chinese ghost story he also had a, a movie called uh beijing jones and the temple of doom which was really <laughs> what sealed <laughs> spielberg thing I don't. God, I like why didn't I, I think of that? Fuck, I love that's that, good. I love that in that scenario, Beijing is the is the Midwest of uh, of China. <laughs> uh, we're not. I mean, we, we can't go nuts here on uh, the about the his wife, but I did want to say. I mean, it, they they both. You know, you mentioned the Steven Spielberg thing, but she also they become like the Hong Kong film power couple, and they dominate. Like the whole nineties, uh, yeah. Nansen she becomes one of the most, I think, influential women in Chinese film. Period, um, yeah. along with a couple of others, but like she's considered like one of the top dogs in that area. But the pinnacle of Choi's Hong Kong career came in 1991 when he revived a decades-long saga based on the life of a Cantonese folk hero named Wong Fei Hung. So born in the southern Chinese city of Foshan in 1947, Wong Fei Hung began practicing martial arts at the age of five when his father began instructing him in the art of Hungar. Uh, Todd, as a martial artist, are you, are you familiar with Hungar at all? No, that was a I, that was a new one for me. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, a lot of the a lot of the kung fu styles did, out of you China, do Korean are, stuff, right? You do yeah, a Korean I, martial, yeah. Yeah, I did. I I still do uh, Korean martial arts, but a lot of the uh, a lot of the original kung fu styles uh, will come as no surprise are heavily based on nature. So you get a you know tiger crane. If you've seen Kung Fu Panda, <laughs> they right. got a lot of their inspiration <laughs> from original Kung Fu. Um, but yeah, I, I was not familiar with this one by name, but I did look into it. It's actually pretty cool. So yeah. I had a lot of trouble with it just because I thought I could make a joke here and I don't know where to go with it. I could go with like Hungar, like to apply. I too am battling with Hungar myself right now. I need a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> or since my name is Gary and it's like H U N G A R, like it could be like I could make a joke about <laughs> about Gar your being dick. hung. It's, it's, yeah, it's always it always goes back to the jokes about Gary's dick every See, yeah. time. Yeah, because I would have I would have <laughs> I would have bet money on the second one about your about your dick. Well, yeah, because you know? Huggar it would imply that I have a large penis, which might be funny, 
And at the added irony on that of it not being true might increase the humor. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Com comedy is really hard. I, I, th I think, is, I think if you go, go more simplistic, just be like hungar. How hung is gar? You know, something along those uh, lines, a little more okay. surface level. There you go. I'm, I'm going to go. Glad really glad we're workshopping this while we're recording. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> so as Wong Fei Hong grew older, he and his father, who was the owner of a medical clinic there, uh, they would travel from village to village to give demonstrations, uh, you know, martial arts demonstrations, and to sell medicine. And Wong soon became famous for having never lost a fight. I mean, he's like a kid at this time, like a preteen, you know. So when Wong grew up, he inherited not only his father's clinic, but also his father's position as the martial arts coach for the local militia. Wong would, uh, over the course of his life, he would marry four times. He had four children. Uh, and he was you know, very successful and very well-liked. But after one of his clinics burned down during anti-government riots in 1924, he became despondent and depressed, and he died a year later in 1925. I read this in your notes, and it it, it, it I had to go on a rabbit hole of uh, It is Wong easy Fei to Hong. do with this character. It's well, because I was like, wow, what a backstory. Had a clinic, trades yeah. of people, got sad and died. <laughs> it was like what right. a cover, yeah. but there was a lot that led up to that point, and so much so that like I mean, this oh, guy I, he there was... was a bit, there was a lot of yada 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 in my uh, <laughs> yeah. In my, that I was going to say, if you're at all intrigued, stick around because my contribution this week will be a deep dive on Wong Fei Hun. <laughs> well, I was about to actually say, like, uh, just just as part of that, I mean, this guy was like the. His his life in some parts some parts are really cool and then some parts are like he's the iron claw of kung fu or something you know like the Thought <laughs> Eric family because uh, he thought he was cursed and like I mean it sounds like Wong Fei Hung and his dad were both very charismatic guys and they were showmen by trade so they had that thing they were like street performers you know they would do these shows and then they ran the medicine the apothecary that they had his his dad was part of the 10 tigers of canton which i thought was really cool which is like supposedly the greatest fighters of that area and uh essentially all of them could trace directly back to the shaolin monks like the ones we watched in that movie the other day the other day being like a two years ago right. um, <laughs> in 2020 yeah. is when the <laughs> right um, it's funny because it, like even even in my style, which is more Tang Sudo, World Tang Sudo Association, worldtangsudoassociation.com if you're curious. But even in that association, which is uh, more on the artsy side, it's, you know, it's less popular. But we have our own group of masters that were considered the originators that were some of the best around. But it's interesting to dive into martial arts as a whole as it spread throughout the world between China, Japan, Korea, largely. Um, where there were these groups of, you know, these five people, these seven people or these 10 people that were masters. And then it sort of branched out from there. And like I said, my style is no, is, uh, is no exception where part of my style original originated from the original masters. And then part of it broke off and part of it became more popularized and even, became part of the Olympics and is what is now known as Taekwondo, whereas mm. I practice Tang Sudo and it's, it's like an offshoot kind of. Yeah. I always do. Cause whenever I tell anybody the style I do, they just kind of stare at me blankly and I always have to go, it's the artsier cousin of Taekwondo. And they're like, Oh, okay. Cause everybody knows Taekwondo, like I said, from the Olympics and, and all that stuff. But 
nobody's ever heard of this because we're of the traditional art, whereas Taekwondo became the sport popularized in America, yada, yada, yada. I was a dumb guy. I just used to think Kung Fu was just Kung Fu, and that's just what it is. And now there's like these hundreds of styles. There's and, a lot. And Wong, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Wong Fei Hung has like, like, I mean, he takes his dad's style and like he mixes it with other people he meets. You can read about all the different styles he picks up. He's even got, you know, and it's hard to tell like what's legend and what's real because yeah. nobody really knows for sure. But he supposedly has this like cool story about like where he first got famous was like when he was, uh, 13 and his dad was doing this performance and a rival performer got jealous of the crowd size he was drawing and challenged him to a fight and instead Wong Fei Hung's dad invited him to sub in for for him and so Wong Fei Hung at 13 had a like a pole fight with this other expert and beat huh. the shit out of him <laughs> and uh and so at 13 word started traveling fast that this kid was a badass and he just kind of carried on his father's legacy and started training people, the local militias and stuff like that. But, but to the other point I was making about the, the Von Eric thing, I was, it was like, you know, you mentioned he has uh, four wives. It's not, he wasn't like a fuck boy. He just, no, his wife kept, kept dying. He thought he was cursed. Uh, the first three wives all died of like random illness. Uh -huh. And one of his sons had like a rival, martial artist that was jealous of him and murdered him and uh wow. and so like he, he was just having like all these like terrible things and uh so but it, by the time he got to his fourth wife she was his mistress or concubine if you will which is a really a word we should bring back because it's fun but anyway <laughs> uh one thing hug did not want to ruin her so like she didn't get the name or anything oh. or like it to marry him because he thought Man, he would like, that's pass just it like on to the her. iron claw i know that's what i'm saying <laughs> uh but anyway not a, to none is ton is known about the guy there's enough for plenty of story but uh sure anyway we need to get back to gently and kicking people and stuff <laughs> so in the years Following his death, Wong Fei Hong became a folk legend and later a pop culture phenomenon, spawning movies, TV shows. Uh, there's a there's a museum there in Foshan. There are books, video games, music. Uh, since 1949, there have been over 100 feature films, several TV series, radio dramas, and novels, all dedicated to Wong. Now, this is a weird cultural thing. This is kind of unprecedented here in the West. Like this would be because this is not. You know, this is a real guy who really lived. So this would be, imagine if someone took a cross between like Teddy Roosevelt and Robin Hood and, and just made a hundred movies about Teddy Roosevelt, but like, but, but mixed in these like, you know, legends, you know, that are they're not based on history at all, you know, like, uh, I mean, Pecos Bill, things like that, like that. I was going to say like Billy the Kid or yeah, uh, or I mean, that's something like the that. Closest, yeah. But but Billy the Kid didn't have hundreds of movies dedicated to him, right? right but but right. if he had, yes, then that would well, be. Well, in that essay that said the criteria, the Grady Hendrix thing that he wrote, I, he he said literally, I I put it down here. He says, imagine Benjamin Franklin spotting a franchise larger than james bonds that sprawls out like the star wars empire movies tv shows museums books video games and music since 1949 there have been well over a hundred feature films numerous tv series several radio dramas an unknown number of novels uh there are many movies about his students his teachers even his fourth wife got a 32 episode television series in 2011 <laughs> jeez that's insane so it's it's crazy i mean so you know 
it's it's crazy to think about that because there just really is not a, a comparable character in America, you know. Uh, yeah. he, Grady Hendrix mentions James Bond. I, I mean, I guess if James Bond had been based on a real dude, you know, but this is like based on a real dude, and then it, but it, who became a legend? The first of these movies, though, they starred Quan Tok Hing, who was an actor who would go on to pr- play Wong in eighty-one movies released between nineteen forty-nine and nineteen seventy. Uh, so just over twenty years, eighty-one times this guy played him. Jeez. The majority of which were helmed by a director named Wu Pang, who sought to create a series of kung fu movies that focused on a realistic depiction of Hungar uh, fighting techniques. In 1956 alone, 25 Wong Fei Hung films were produced. That that's two movies. That that's a movie every two weeks, basically. <laughs> that's coming out in 1956, all starring Quan. It's it's, uh, I don't know, it's just wild to well, think about. <laughs> it, it makes you think, like you know, especially here more recently, like where somebody goes out on a limb and makes a, you know, a more, has a a more original take on a story or a type of filmmaking. And then when it's successful, Hollywood gets their hands on it and they do 20 knockoffs of it over over a period of the next three to five years. You know, we think that's a new thing. It's not. (laughs) No. And and I'm also curious because I couldn't find a lot of information on these specific films. I think a lot of them have been lost since then uh and i and i don't i don't jack shit about the chinese film industry in the 1950s believe it or not so i don't know uh, well then what are we doing here justin (laughs) i don't know if these were like full-length films or if they were like hour-long almost like episodes I, i don't know how that really worked or you know how they were released theatrically if it were like a like a serial you know serials from like the 30s and 40s yeah yeah that's kind of what it makes me that's what it brings to mind, but I I genuinely don't know. I couldn't find like run times and things like that on any of them. If Donald but, Trump could get his hands on a TV studio or something, this is what would happen. <laughs> this is this is like the publicity he craves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it probably goes without saying, but the series was immensely popular. That's why they kept making them. Although it did go on a brief pause in 1961 before being revised by a director named Wong Fung in 1967 with an additional 11 films produced between 1967 and 1970. That's still a lot. Still a lot. Yeah. In three (laughs) years, 11 movies in three years. Yeah, that's a lot. Uh, And these later films abandoned the old-fashioned approach of the earlier Wong films and introduced a more stylized uh, form of, of filmed martial arts, courtesy of choreographer Simon Yuen. By the time the final film in the series was released, Quan Tok Hing was 65 years old. So basically, he's retirement age. Oof. After that, it kind of goes on hiatus. Uh, Wong Fei Hung films are not being produced for a little while, although both the Shaw Brothers Studio and Golden Harvest made attempts to revive the character in the early 1970s to no avail. But in 1976, the character finally returned to screens, both big and small. That year, the first uh, one was a TV series, which also starred Quan. He he came back as the character. He's now 70 years old. And then uh, that same year, a film directed by Lau Kar Lung called Challenge of the Masters, which featured Gordon Liu hey. as Wong Fei Hung. Yeah. Now, longtime listeners of the show might recognize a couple of those names. Uh, Lau Kar Lung directed uh, The 36th Chamber of Shaolin, which also starred Gordon Liu. Uh, and that's a film that we discussed in our series, The Six Degrees of Kill Bill, back in the very first year. Actually, the first like six months, I think, of this podcast. 
So two years after Challenge of the Masters, Yun Wo Ping, which was one of Simon Yun, the guy who uh, was the choreographer on those those later Wong Fei Hong movies, Yun Wo Ping, he is a fight choreographer and director in his own right, one of the best to ever do it, to be honest. He cast a young actor named Jackie Chan as Wong in a movie called Drunken Master, which featured the elder Yun as Beggar So, Wong's alcoholic teacher. Sorry, I cannot stop thinking about Donald Trump if he could like make his own like whole series of like people always ask me, how do you get the best tiger crane? I just really have it. I just do. I don't know. I think the about, greatest I just, it's the greatest tiger the crane. Greatest. Uh the dag fog, shadowless <laughs> kick, really southern, fancy, very southern tiger fork. It's, I just have the best. Everybody always asks me, how do you do it? My uh, they talk about the Tin Tigers of Canton. They call me the Canton Tiger. That's how they do it. I don't know. People just call me that. I don't know why they do it. They just do it. <laughs> this, anyway. bit, this bit's still going. It's still going. It's still hanging. <laughs> was, sorry, this is this is spontaneity. Okay. I just thought about Donald Trump trying to be a kung fu film star. And it's just I don't know. It's a dark road to go down. <laughs> yeah. Uh but yeah. Uh what oh oh what I was gonna say here though, originally it was Jackie Chan. Um, you know, I, according to the commentary, initially when this film was proposed, Jackie Chan would have been reprising the role of uh Wong Fei Hung, and Sambo would have been Butcher Wing, uh which he played in the Magnificent Butcher, and uh Lung Fode would be playing the same character. Uh Oh. That he he had also played in the Magnificent Butcher yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah they those just, three were those three were kind of peas in a pod. That would have been a good movie though. Uh, but it's it would have been a very different vibe, I think, than this. You know, because Jackie Chan, the way that he played uh, Wong in Drunken Masters, obviously is kind of a goof. You know, uh, which is not what they're really going for in this. Well, yeah, it, it, looking at Jackie Chan's uh, career, it's clear he got a good portion of his inspiration from silent films you know buster keaton charlie chaplin which that's not a secret like but yeah i yeah it definitely would have brought a different tone to the movie whereas this was more of a more of a dramatic adventure i feel like with fantasy elements but i might be getting ahead of myself also so, an excellent lion dancer. Oh my God. People always tell me that. And just so whenever they see me, they're like, oh, other lion dancers, they talk to me and they're like, oh, you do the best lion dancing. <laughs> There's a lot lion of lion dancing, not hey, lion dancing. Hey, hey, Don, hey Donald. <laughs> I'm not Donald? good at this impersonation, so I don't know why you want to push it. But... <laughs> hey, do- hey, Don- hey, Donald, <laughs> would you describe yourself as Hungar? <laughs> oh, I'm the most Hungar. <laughs> I think it's a... <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. It really is a it really is a bad Donald Trump impression. I, it's, it's what I don't have. I've, I've it literally. I, I got to be honest, and this is not an excuse. I just that's literally the first time I've even ever tried. I think. And so, well, really? well valiant well, yeah. effort. Bad then. for a first attempt. Yeah, not, yeah. Um, I thought I thought you'd been workshopping this for a while, and you know. no, I did not intend on talking about Donald Trump tonight. It just <laughs> excellent. This came up naturally, <laughs> uh, and of course, in a, in, as as I would expect in a discussion about a film produced in Hong Kong in 1991, Donald Trump's going to fucking come up. <laughs> Please reach out to us on all of the socials at Cinema underscore Shock. All right, so I'm going to get into a little bit of history here because I think it is important to understand the circumstances under which. Once upon a time in China, China was made. But a small caveat: I am not a historian, and 
the the history of the British rule over Hong Kong is a very long and complicated one. And unfortunately, we just we don't have time to get into all of the details here today. Um, Google it, I guess. But if you have seen Once Upon a Time in China, and I hope you have if you're listening to this, then you know that the British occupation and westernization of Hong Kong plays a major role in the story. So which Britain's was occup- a problem back in those days, but now everybody's yeah. cool. It gets along great. <laughs> <laughs> Britain's occupation of Hong Kong began in 1841 during the first opium war between the British and the Qing dynasty. By the 1980s, there's, a, there's another like yada, yada, yada. 1841 now we're in the 1980s okay (laughs) because again we don't have time to get into all of that uh but by the 1980s britain and china were negotiating hong kong's return to chinese rule which was planned for 1997 but the 1989 tiananmen square massacre of pro-democracy protesters on the chinese mainland prompted hundreds of thousands of hong kong residents to rush to secure foreign passports uh as uh you you referenced his essay earlier gary but as as grady hendrix writes in that essay that he wrote for criterion's release of these films he says quote many of the colony's residents experienced an identity crisis were they chinese were they westerners how could they navigate a changing world while holding on to their past and then enter Choi Hawk, ready to give his own take on the Wong Fei Hung character and kind of confront these questions head on. And in doing so, he actually caused a, a, a small bit of controversy uh, by casting not a Hong Konger, but a mainlander Chinese actor, a B-list martial artist named Li Lianji, better known by his stage name Jet Li. So one more thing about the British rule over Hong Kong. Uh, to bring it back to movies, specifically, uh, you know, uh, genre films, Rush Hour, like that, that transition from uh, British to China rule um, is kind of in the background of the plot of that, uh, of that movie. That would make sense because that came out around 97, 98, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. it would have been happening right during that. Yeah. I like, uh, you, I like is- that you said bringing it back to movies as if we haven't been talking about movies this whole fucking time. Right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> <laughs> like that's literally, the show is literally called Cinema Shock. Like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, <laughs> Man, Todd's Todd's like you guys have been kind of fucking it up. (laughs) I've been away away for too long. There's been a lot of talk about history and Donald Trump, and it's just not doing it for me or the other listeners. (laughs) All right, so let's back up a little bit to talk very briefly about where Lee Jet Li sits in the pantheon of of Hong Kong cinema or uh, Chinese cinema in general. So again. This is stuff that we, some of this is going to be stuff that we touched on a little bit in our Six Degrees of Kill Bill series, both in that 36 Chamber of Shaolin episode and also in our episode on the Bruce Lee film Game of Death, uh, where we talked pretty extensively about the career of Bruce Lee. So the, the well, effect that- But before there was a Bruce Lee, there was a Jet Lee. No, there wasn't. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> all right well i've already messed up the history so i don't know <laughs> <laughs> the, the effect that bruce lee had on the hong kong film industry really can't be overstated uh he had pretty much single-handedly transformed the industry and the martial arts genre throughout the 1970s uh the late 60s early 70s and notably he made the films not only popular in their homeland but on the international market as well that's a big part of this uh but before bruce lee came about 
most of the martial arts films being produced in Hong Kong, you know, throughout the 1960s, they relied heavily on cinematic trickery to portray the fight scenes uh, with, using camera angles and discreetly placed trampolines, which helped the performers look far more acrobatic than they actually were. Now, that's not discounting any of their abilities. A lot of these guys are, are highly capable, but uh, you're not seeing like realistic fighting on screen at all at any of those. But Bruce Lee brought a genuine physicality to Hong Kong martial arts films. His, his fights were visceral and fast. And most importantly, they looked real. Like you knew that Bruce Lee, even off screen, was a force to be reckoned with. Like this guy is a badass in real life. And you can tell, you know, it's not a show. It's yeah. not a character. So when Lee died prematurely in 1973, at the age of 32, he left a major void in the industry. Audiences had had kind of grown used to seeing his style of authentic martial arts on screen, and they were no longer going to settle for anything less. But at the time, there were very few performers who could bring the same level of, uh, of athleticism to martial arts cinema that Lee had. And the first ones who did were folks like Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung. Now, Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung are undoubtedly two of the greatest cinematic martial artists of all time. And I don't think anyone would argue with that, especially not me. I'm a big fan of both of these dudes. But but the basis of Chan and Hung's martial arts prowess lies in their training in the Peking Opera School, which is a sort of like boarding school. It sounds awful, honestly. Like J Jackie Chan's wrote about it extensively in his autobiography, but it's a sort of like boarding school where basically parents give their kids to the school for training, right? And at these schools, they would develop skills in martial arts, acrobatics, tumbling, music, and dance, all for the sake of performance, not competition. So there was a general knowledge among Hong Kong audiences that no matter how impressive their feats were, uh, and, and obviously we know that they're very impressive, they, they knew that their skills were developed for show business, basically. So despite the popularity of their films, and, and they were very, very popular. I mean, Jackie Chan is arguably the most famous movie star in, in Chinese history, you know, uh, maybe second to Bruce Lee, but otherwise second to none, you know, but so despite this, there was still a desire to see genuine martial artists on screen, like someone who you knew off screen was, was a badass, you know, and they found one such martial artist in Jet Li. Li was born in Beijing, China in 1963. And he showed a proclivity for martial arts at a very young age. Uh, when he was eight years old, his natural talent for wushu, which is, is kung fu, was noticed as he practiced at a school summer course, which led to him joining the Beijing wushu team and being trained by renowned wushu coaches uh, Li Junfeng and Wu Bin, who, you know, when they noticed Li's natural talents, they they both made extra efforts to help him develop his technique. Like, they see this kid, they're like, this kid's got the fucking goods. We're going to make sure that we sculpt this into something special so as a preteen lee began competing against adults so this is kind of there's some parallels with wong fei hung here in this in this way you know lee is competing against adults twice his age you know and winning and he became the all-around the national all-around wushu champion from 1975 to 1979 and by the way the name jet lee uh he, he got that name I think based on so a couple of his movies later on got released in I think it was the Philippines and they, they were having a hard time pronouncing his name so they just named him Jet because he's fast because he kicks fast I mean that's it's as simple as that yeah <laughs> that's what it was nice. that tracks <laughs> yeah so Lee actually retired 
from competitive martial arts when he was only 18 years old. Part of that was spawned by a, an injury that he had, but he he essentially retired from competitive martial arts. 18 years old, so he's still a teenager, but he did become the assistant coach for the Beijing Wushu team for a few years until his martial arts abilities led to a career in the film industry. And Jet Li made his film debut in the 1982 film Shaolin Temple. Uh, Shaolin Temple's got an interesting story. I won't get too much into it, but um, and I haven't seen the film, but it was actually the first martial, the first major martial arts movie, or maybe the, fir the first ever martial arts movie produced in mainland China. Everything else had been produced in Hong Kong prior to wow. that, which is wild to think. But yeah, it was like the first one produced in mainland China. Hmm. Uh, and, and Shaolin Temple was a huge hit. It broke box office records. It spawned a sequel. The sequel is called Kids from Shaolin, which came out two years later. That became the highest grossing film in China that year. The sequel did. And the third film in the trilogy, Martial Arts of Shaolin, was released a couple of years later in 1986. And that actually marked the only uh, collaboration ever between Jet Li and director Lao Kar Lung, who you know, did 36 Chamber of the Shaolin. So that same year, in 1986, Lee made his directorial debut. And this happens a lot in Hong Kong cinema where the performers direct. I mean, Jackie Chan and Sambo Hung have both done a ton of directing. Uh, but Lee's directorial debut was a film called Born to Defense. Now, that film didn't do particularly well at the Hong Kong box office. But in mainland China, it was the second highest grossing movie of the year. The first highest was Martial Arts of Shaolin. So the year of 1986, Jet Li... Uh, is the star of the two highest grossing films in China. Nice. So, and he's like 26 years old. So after the success of the Shaolin Temple movies, Hong Kong, you know, they started to take notice of Lee's skills, which up to that point had all been produced. It, it, you know, all of his movies had been produced in mainland China, but Hong Kong wanted him in their movies uh, and they had a much bigger film industry. So Lee began getting a lot of offers from studios in Hong Kong, most of which, many of which came with much bigger paychecks than he had been receiving so far. And Lee would eventually end up signing a multi-film deal with the legendary studio Golden Harvest, which, of course, was the very studio that made Bruce Lee a star. So Jet Li, not yet 30 years old, was quickly becoming one of the most famous movie stars in China, and his next big role as Wong Fei Hong would solidify his place in film history. It's like a Chinese Macaulay Culkin. This is <laughs> this is that's why that's exactly that's how I've always thought of Jet Li. I know? was just thinking, <laughs> right. yeah. Imagine if he had been left home alone, what oh. he would have done. The to burgers Harry and would Marv. have faced. Yeah, Harry and Marv would have faced. A he wouldn't totally have needed different predicament. He would not have needed any of those little little tricks and paint cans and micro machines. They'd have been little throwing stars. Oh yeah, that's true. Like, yeah, that's, that's yeah, a, is that a is that a that's a Japanese thing, isn't it? Um, I don't think it's specifically Japanese. Ninjas. Who knows? I don't know. Well, I do go. know that Jet Li, by the way, does not even speak Cantonese either. So for Cantonese folk hero, he's Jet Li spoke Mandarin the whole time. He had to be <laughs> he dubbed. Did. Yeah. So I and I don't you know like like I know I only know Cantonese from like Wayne's World. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's like she's the window. Stop it, you're scaring me. I feel like we're getting in, I feel like we're walking a line here. <laughs> I, I think that means uh, bathroom wear or something like that. I can't remember. I looked that up once. Uh, also, gently doesn't use hagar in this movie at all either. He's more, you know, he's more long fist method in tai chi. Uh, that's for all you 
martial heads out there. I don't know what you call them. Like Marsh, martial martial RDX, <laughs> martial RDX, foo fans, the Kung yeah. clan. <laughs> so, I don't whatever whatever you guys are. <laughs> that one's I picked up those styles just anybody with an eagle eye for that kind of thing. Yeah. Thanks, Gary. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Uh, Gently did not. Uh, he did. Ha- he did have to have his voice uh, dubbed in this and, and in all of these movies. Uh, although I think a couple of the later ones, there is an existing Cantonese like audio track. I think, or or no Mandarin audio track with which has his original voice on it in some of the later films. But on the the uh, the first couple at least. That's not even an option. I don't know if they just didn't record it at all and just dubbed everything or what, but they did record his voice on like, I think part three and in America, uh, but those first couple, but, but the, the version that was widely released, uh, at least in Hong Kong was the one that we watched where, where his voice is dubbed. So most. I picked up well, on that immediately. That it was dubbed. Yeah, I was just like, that does not sound like Cantonese to me at all. <laughs> I think it's easier to say that does not sound like Jet Li's voice, which I think oh, his voice sounds like at this point. Was, oh, yeah, uh, right, right. Okay. Also, the fact that the lips don't match what the words that are coming out uh, of his mouth, you know, so uh, it's a pretty good indication. <laughs> yeah. So most Wong Fei Hong productions uh, over the years, over the, the last, you know, what 50 70 years <laughs> most of those had played pretty fast and loose with the real wong's history and choice was no exception the biggest innovation that he made when he was developing the story for this uh in comparison to you know previous incarnations of the character on screen was to portray wong as a naive sheltered kid uh with no knowledge of the world outside of chinese medicine and martial arts as opposed to the kind of rigid stoic icon that was played by Quan in that original series. And yet he also wasn't the brash young punk that was portrayed by Gordon Liu and Jackie Chan, but instead a well-rounded and, and, you know, very realistic human being. Another contribution to the mythos was the character of 13th Ant played in the film by Rosamund Quan. 13th Ant was not a character in any of those old Wong Fei Hong movies. She was completely an invention of Choi Hawk and his co-writers. But uh, yeah, Rosamund Kwan, you know, she she began her career in soap operas and throughout most of her career appeared mostly in dramatic roles, although to, to Western audiences, she's most well known for her appearances in action films because those are the films that get imported here the most. You know, uh, she starred alongside stars like Jackie Chan, Sam Hung, and Yoon Bao in films like Twinkle Twinkle Lucky Stars, Millionaire's Express, and Project A Part Two. She was like a big, uh, like she's her parrots were also uh movie people so like she just had that like in her blood i guess but uh yeah she uh she you know good for her she sticks with this whole thing through like all 100 sequels except for like one of them i think so she's uh, missing and she's missing in part three or three or four three i think i was thinking about this just like i don't i don't i don't think that 13th ant is based on anybody exactly but you know, if you look at Wong Fei Hung's uh, fourth wife, uh, it was uh, Mo Kwai Lan. It's not a direct representation of her, but she was this woman that was adopted by Wong Fei Hung's uncle, and it was a uh, she was a martial artist herself. It seemed like kind of a badass, like carried on stuff after Wong Fei Hung. She lived in like to like the early sixties, I want to say, or something like that. Wow. But uh, um, she did something called uh, Dit Da, which. Uh, 
which is like like close quarters fighting or something and uh and he actually incorporated that into his style to make it like even more well-rounded or something oh, wow. like that but supposedly like she was at one of his demonstrations at some point and his shoe came off and hit her in the head and so then she walked over to him and smacked him in the face and uh <laughs> she was not intimidated by him and this wow. led to the uncle apologizing for her and then they became close and then fell in love and it was mildly forbidden. It's a whole thing because of the ties to the family. And also like she was, you know, like 23 and I think he was like 60 something at the time, but you know, <laughs> whatever. Anyway, uh, maybe the, the uncle thing, it just made me think like, Oh, I wonder if they were thinking about her a little bit here. Or if, yeah. It's, it's, it's very possible, but she definitely was, is mostly a fabrication. And the 13th ant thing is, is weird. And it's something I don't quite understand like the relation because, uh, and even they even make jokes about it in the movie. I, I don't know if they do it in the first one, but in some of the sequels, they kind of make jokes about like when they're speaking to Westerners about how complicated it is, you know, but well, she's yeah, not, they definitely, she's, I think in the first one talk about like, Oh, it was by marriage. Like they seem to want right. to clarify that. They, they, they're very specific to say that they're not related by blood to make it less creepy, but it's still forbidden because there's a familial connection of some sort. And the 13th apparently refers to her being like the 13th oldest aunt that he, I don't know. It's, it's weird, but anyway, uh, yeah, it's, I don't understand it at all. So in once upon a time in China, uh, this character, you know, 13th and as we mentioned, she is Wong's distant aunt by marriage or something like that. But uh, most importantly, she's a character. She's just returned from England where she was going to school. So she speaks English. She dresses like a Westerner. You know, she she kind of was created to represent the voice of progress. You know, she embraces Western technology and ideas and encourages Wong to do the same. Uh, and 13th aunt you know, like I said, she was an invention of these writers of Choi Hawk and his co-writers, but she has become part of the Wong Fei Hung legend in almost every Wong story since. So she's like really caught on, you know. But while we are on the subject of the cast, there is one other person that I want to mention, mostly because I'm a big fan of him and he's he is very good in this movie. But there's an actor named Yuan Biao. So he was born under the name Ha Ling Chung in 1957. And Yoon received this stage name, which means Little Tiger, while attending the Peking Opera School uh, called the China Drama Academy. Was the, he had been enrolled there since the age of six. Uh, the China Drama Academy is the very same Peking Opera School where Sammo Hung, Jackie Chan, Corey Yoon, and others studied. So he was classmates with all of these guys. And along with those mentioned, he was part of a performance troupe there known as the Seven Little Fortunes, which are kind of considered to be the best of the best. You know, so it's it's Yun Bao, it's it's uh, Corey Yuan, I think Yuan Woping was in there, Sammo Hung, Jackie Chan, all these guys, they're all in this troop together. So not only were they classmates, but they were part of kind of the, they were kind of at the top of their class. So they all became very close. Now, Yun Bao, he, he attended that uh, Chinese Drama Academy until the age of 16, and when he left, he followed his classmate Sammo Hung into a career in the Hong Kong film industry. And just as Jackie Chan had, uh, Yun, his movie career began as a stuntman. You know, he worked on Fist of Fury and Way of the Dragon, which led to him being uh, Bruce Lee's stunt double on Enter the Dragon. Not a bad way to get your start in the film business, you know? Bruce Lee's stunt double. 
And when, it, is, it is weird to think of Bruce Lee having a stunt double. <laughs> yeah, but you know, so does Jet Li. You know, Jet yeah, Li doesn't yeah. do his own stunts. He's like, yeah. I'm not a stunt man. I'm a martial artist. I'm not going to put my body on the line. <laughs> so you got to be a badass to to pull that job off. And it's out. I mean, Jet Li definitely has one. So oh yeah, uh, yeah. But Which like, will, if you're who? Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee stunt double. I don't know. It also feels like Jackie Chan's stunt double would be like a weird. And job Jackie Chan has like... a stunt double who probably just sits on the sidelines twiddling his thumbs for the entire movie. <laughs> no, that's what like, I'm saying. Like, what the like fuck does like... Jackie Chan's stunt double do? <laughs> <You're> just <laughs> like, oh, I'm... he just watches. Go. I'm glad that is not me. <laughs> if you watch any behind the scenes stuff, he's the guy like in the corner eating a cheeseburger. Right. Just, like, <laughs> So, so when reshoots, oh, that looks like it hurt. <laughs> so when reshoots began to finish Bruce Lee's final film, The Unfinished Game of Death, Yoon was actually one of the fake Bruce Lees uh, that was brought in to double for the star. And again, if you want more information on that very bizarre situation, go listen to our Game of Death episode. It's it's a wild story. So Yoon continued to work throughout the 70s, mostly as a stuntman at first, but going into the 80s, he got more and more jobs as an actor thanks to his friends Sammo Hong and Jackie Chan, both of whom at this point had become you know pretty successful. His first lead role came in 1979 with Knockabout, and he starred in several films in the early 1980s, many of which were directed by or co-starring his Peking opera brothers, such as Sammo Hung's The Prodigal Son and Yoon Woo Ping's Dreadnought, and then Project A, Meals on Wheels, and Dragons Forever. All three of those uh, had him co-starring alongside Hung and Chan. And on a personal note, one of my favorite films that Ewan stars in is a movie called Writing Wrongs, uh, where he starred alongside Cynthia Rothrock. If you don't know Cynthia Rothrock, uh, look her up, watch her movies. She is a an absolute badass. Yes, and Writing Wrongs, <laughs> Writing Wrongs is maybe my favorite role of hers that I've seen. It's a fantastic movie. Um, it was directed by Corey Ewan. Corey Ewan would, uh, who another legendary Hong Kong stuntman, fight coordinator. Uh, and director, he's part of that, you know, Peking Opera School. He's done some stuff in America as well, like The Transporter with Jason Statham, he directed, you know. Um, but Writing Wrongs, it features some of the best fight choreography I have ever seen in a movie. It is fantastic. And of course, the the choreography was uh, courtesy of Sam Hung, who who was the action coordinator for that movie. And uh, I, I cannot recommend that movie enough. I, I would like to cover it on the podcast one day. There's a fantastic 4K release from Vinegar Syndrome of that, that uh, you, you just got to watch it. It's really, really great. And it's actually the movie that made me a star, a, a fan of of Yoon Bao, uh, because he's he's very good at it. I mean, he holds his own against Cynthia Rothrock, uh, which is no small feat. Uh, and he's got some really great stuff in that it, movie. So it's It's worth it. It's worth it for any one of those performers. Yeah, yeah, all of those performers, <laughs> all of them together. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's the thing with like Project A and Dragons Forever, Millionaires Express. Like these movies are like, you know what the Expendables wanted to be when it brought all these guys together in one movie. Like they did that a bunch of times in like the eighties uh, and going into the nineties. You know where Jackie Chan, Yoon Bao, Sammo Hung, all of these guys are in movies together, uh, and. And they're all bangers, even, you know, regardless of if the story ends up being good or not, you know, the action scenes are going to be worth watching and worth mm -hmm. your time. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that was my little talk about how much I like writing wrongs. Because <laughs> that's a, I watched that movie last year. It's my favorite, like, first time watch of 2023, but favorite movie that I watched that I'd never seen before. And I've been ever since telling everyone I can who I think would enjoy it to watch it. So 
Nice. And now I'm telling all of you. So anyway, uh, anyway, in Once Upon a Time in China, back to this movie, uh, Yuan stars as Lung, uh, Lung Fun, uh, which is a character who would become a mainstay throughout the entire franchise. Although after the first film, the character would be played by another actor, uh, Yuan Bao possibly realizing that he was a little overqualified to play a bumbling sidekick type. Yeah, this guy, I mean, I don't know. The more I read about him, it's just why most people working, he's considered like one of the best, most acrobatic by far yeah. martial artists in history. And yeah, I guess, unfortunately for him, though, it's just uh, he never quite got that publicity like the, the other guys got. Uh, the, yeah, I don't the know. Same breakthrough startled that, you know, like Chan and Sambo gently and all that. Yeah, so I'm I mean, pitching he, a movie is what I'm doing right now, where he <laughs> hunts them down and kills them. He never really got like, um, he he never really got known in the West here like they did, and he was never as big of a star as they were, even in Hong Kong. But he was a big star. I mean, he was very, and, and is very well known, but he never had that like international breakthrough. Uh, despite starring in a movie with Cynthia Rothrock, who Cynthia Rothrock never got as big as she should have honestly most of her stuff was straight to video yeah uh, which is a Justin's shame angling for that he's like, angling for that roth rock autograph it's a <laughs> yeah please send it to me i'll do a whole series on cynthia Rothrock if we need to <laughs> i i to be honest that's one of the interviews i would push super hard and go like i would go really hard to get that uh to get that interview i bet she's a blast to talk to her her uh film debut is in a movie called Yes, Madam, which stars uh, Michelle Yeoh, or very, very her, her first starring role, uh, in fact. But it's also Cynthia Rothrock's like film debut, and she has the single best action movie introduction, like in history. She nice. just walks onto the scene as and it's immediately just starts kicking ass. Like you don't know who this woman is, <laughs> she just shows up and she starts kicking people's ass. And it's this you know six foot, almost six foot tall white woman. Yeah. Uh, surrounded by uh, Hong Kong actors and she's just towering over everyone and just like it's such a badass she's so cool anyway yeah. uh, what were we talking about once upon a time in China uh, oh, yeah. so other <laughs> other notable members of the cast here include Jackie Chung primarily known as a musical artist not just a musical artist but the best selling Chinese musical artist of all time so kind of a big deal uh, he plays kind of a kind of a comedic character Bucktooth So in this Kent Ching plays Porky Wing. Uh, and I found out another side note. I found out that Kent Ching's father, who was a martial arts master, he's the kind of chubby guy. His father was a martial arts master who trained the guy who, the, the, the director of uh, 36 Chamber of Chaolin, Lao. He, oh, wow. he trained. So, yeah, so there, it's all connected. It's yeah. wild. You yeah. know, and then uh, there is also uh, Yin Shi Quan, who plays Iron Vest Yim, who's the guy who kind of, well, they have the big battle at the end. He's the one who's kind of down on his luck and kind of has a go against his morals, mm -hmm. essentially, because he, he's not he's not making any money. And they have that big ladder fight at the end of the movie. So the action in Once Upon a Time in China was choreographed by Yun Wuping, along with his brothers Yun Chung Yan and Yun Shan Yi, for which they collectively won the Hong Kong Film Award for Best Action Choreography in 1992. Well deserved, if you ask me. Oh yeah, uh, one of the best fight scenes in the movie, uh, in my opinion, was the one I just referenced. It was a one that it was kind of unplanned and unscripted, uh, or at least unscripted in the form that we see it in in the final film. So it's this ladder fight between uh, Wong and Iron Vest, and it's kind of the big. 
I'd say the climactic fight in the film. Mm-hmm. But when they were filming it, there was a moment when uh, you, if you've seen the movie, you remember where Iron Vest is running towards Wong on a horizontal ladder. Jet Li brings his leg down on the ladder to break it. And while they were filming this scene, Lee injured his leg and had to go to the hospital. And I'm not entirely sure what the injury was. I couldn't find that. I just found that he had injured his leg during that scene. But if you, there's some behind the scenes footage in this and his leg is in a cast. So I assume it was broken or at least fractured in some way. Jeez. Yeah, it was in plaster and he had to be shot from the waist up a good bit. Interestingly, like everywhere I saw something about it, they, there was, you saw either a knee injury or an ankle injury, I think. And it was, and, but they all said it was from the scene where he jumped, like he's fighting, he jumps out of the window with the umbrella. Well, I, I read that awkwardly. I read that too, but I think that this is a different injury. <laughs> mm. I think, and I could be wrong. Well, he, he does get injured a lot. Uh, yeah, he does. He's gently is injury prone. Yeah, he is. Uh, I was trying to think of a wrestler that we could name that gets injured a lot, and then it just left me. Name a wrestler that gets injured a lot. It gets uh, injured. A- Charlotte Flair right now gets injured a lot. So the Charlotte Flair of Hong Kong wrestling, <laughs> <laughs> Hong Kong wrestling, Hong Kong filmmaking. Uh, there are other places anyway. I could go with that would not appropriate. <laughs> uh, but either way, he was injured. I mean, I, I, I saw that, too, where he uh, got injured with the umbrella scene. But I, I was watching an interview with, oh, gosh, it might have been Yoon Woo Ping. Or it was somebody involved in the fight choreography who said that he got injured specifically on that sh- that moment where he brings his leg down on the ladder. So, mm-hmm. But, again, it could have been two different injuries. Either way, because of this injury, they had to kind of rethink the way that the scene was going to be shot. So they decided to create for lack of better term, ladder choreography uh, and make the fight more about the ladders themselves than the, you know, kicking and punching and the martial arts stuff that was originally planned for the fight. And this basically allowed them to shoot the scene primarily in wide shots, which helped them hide the fact that the man playing Wong Fei Hong in those scenes wasn't Jet Li, but was in fact his stunt double, a guy named Xiong Shen Shen, sometimes credited as Hong Yan Yan, but since he's credited as Xiong here. That's how I'll refer to him. Um, that scene, by the way, like I, it's, it's a fantastic fight scene and I can't imagine it any other way. So like this sort of improvisation that they had to do inadvertently created an iconic fight scene. And, and of course you see Jet Li in that scene, like you said, Gary, they, they did bring him in to shoot any kind of inserts from the waist up, but anytime that it's a full body in that, in that it's, it's Xiong. So Xiong Shen Shen, by the way, Another great guy. Love this guy. He had been discovered by Lao Karlung during the filming of Martial Arts of Shaolin, that early Jet Li movie, which led him to being hired as Jet Li's stunt double on that film. Uh, and in addition to being Li's stunt double in Once Upon a Time in China, he also appears as one of the Shahu gang members early on. And he would uh, return as the villainous head of the White Lotus clan in part two. And then as one of Wong's disciples, Clubfoot Seven, by the way, I'll get into this on our further viewing episode, but my favorite character in this entire franchise is Clubfoot. Uh, and he played that character in all of the remaining Once Upon a Time in China films. Once Upon a Time in China was released in Hong Kong on August 15th, 1991. It received highly favorable reviews from critics and was a smash hit at the box office. It went on to be nominated for eight awards at the Hong Kong Film Awards, and it won four of those. It won for Best Director, Best Film Editing, Best Original Film Score, and as previously mentioned, Best Action Choreography. 
Okay, we're going to talk a little bit more about this film. But first, guys, I got to get on my soapbox for just a minute. <laughs> this is so this is something I've discussed this here on the show before. Uh but I think it fits the discussion of this film, you know. I I think that in order to really appreciate a film on on a different level, you know, you need to understand the circumstances political and societal under which it was made. Especially a film that was made in a country and a society other than your own like somewhere that that is literally foreign to you or in a time that's so far removed from your own that you don't have any, you know, personal connection to it. Mm. And the, usually what this means to me uh is that you need you should put yourself kind of basically in the mind frame of the audience members who were there to experience it, the film for the very first time. Uh for example, I'm using this example because I'm working my way through this franchise right now, but when you watch the original Godzilla, you'll have a much bigger appreciation for it if you understand the history of Japan and if you realize that audiences watching Godzilla in 1954 had experienced the horrors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki firsthand less than a decade prior, which that adds a whole other level to that movie. Mm. Now, don't get me wrong. You can absolutely watch Godzilla without this context and simply enjoy it as a movie about a giant monster destroying skyscrapers. And that's totally fine. I mean, the, the American version of Godzilla, the one with Raymond Burr that they released here, you know, uh, that's basically what that is. And hell, that's basically what Godzilla movies turned into later on. They had no like political content or anything, but I do think that your experience watching Godzilla is going to be enriched. If you have a little bit of insight into the period of history in which it was created. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's one reason why when I'm I'm doing research on this show, I try to provide as much context as possible. I think context is very important, uh, whether that's historical context, like in the Godzilla example that I just provided, or whether it's in the context of, you know, film history or the context within the career and sometimes the personal life of a filmmaker or an actor or whoever's creating that movie, just like any other work of art. You know, we you listen to a Taylor Swift album. And a lot of, you, you know, you know about her, that she writes from personal experience, right? So you're experiencing that based on that context. And that's, that's important, I think. And I think that's part of the movie watching experience that, that I think a lot of general audience members don't think about. And, and again, that's fine. If that's how you connect with art, that's fine. People connect with art in different ways. You know, this is, this is kind of how I connect with art a lot of times. And I can absolutely just watch a movie and turn my brain off and not, it doesn't matter if I know the historical context, but you know, if you listen to Taylor Swift, it it is better to think about the influence of the Chinese government (laughs) in in the music industry. (laughs) But you know, if I watch something like say the brood or possession, I'm going to understand a little bit more. If I know that both of those movies were inspired by the recent, painful divorces of their directors it gives you a little more insight into the the artist's psyche for mm. for lack of better term now don't get me wrong I, as i say this a, a good movie should not require that kind of backstory you know good storytelling is good storytelling full stop it, it, you shouldn't have to have that kind of background information but i say all of that because i think that in the case of a movie like once upon a time in china Context is a key element, the context of where Hong Kong cinema was at the time it was released and the historical context of the film, like the the time period in which the film is set. Because you see, moviegoers in Hong Kong in 1991 
they wouldn't have needed this history lesson that we've given on this podcast. Like they they would have understood the film without having to be told all of that. You know, they would have been fully aware of the circumstances behind the British occupation of their country and the crisis of identity that it created. I mean, they were in 1991 still living through it. And they would have also been fully aware of the the history of Wong Fei Hung on film. Like they knew about all these other movies. They knew how the character had been portrayed in media prior to Choi Hawk's portrayal of him. And those are both things, both the historical context and the history of Wong Fei Hung as a pop culture character that weigh heavily not only on this film, but on its sequels as well. Because th- this theme, this theme of like westernization uh, of a, a country that is historically very traditional, uh, that was obviously a big deal. And it is treated as such throughout these films, even the goofier ones. Like they all, they all treat the history uh, seriously. And this series of films is, I mean, it is essentially about the character of Wong Fei Hong learning to accept modernization while never losing touch with his traditions. It's about how to balance tradition with change. Now, now I will say uh, on top of this, there is a lot of Chinese nationalism and stuff in this that has actually is controversial in some circles. Uh, I don't know enough about the history to speak to that because I haven't lived through it. <laughs> you know, I, I I didn't grow up I didn't grow up in Hong Kong, uh, in case you didn't know. So I don't so I don't have the proper context for that. So I can't really speak to that. But what I can speak to is what we see in the film, which is you know, this idea of Westerners, specifically Americans and British, in the first film, kind of impeding on the uh, the traditions of people who who live in Hong Kong, but the movie becomes about how to how to balance tradition with change. The ser- the whole series really does. You know, the film, the first film ends with Wong wearing, you know, a Western style suit and his little uh, funny, I don't know. What do you call those hats? Uh, it looks like a bowler hat. It's not a bowler hat. It's flat on top. Um, oh, um, but, man, I don't know. Uh, but you know, you know what I'm talking about. But anyway, yeah. so it's a Western style outfit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and though he, he does abandon that suit in the sequels, he does keep the hat and the sunglasses and uh and and the western style umbrella that he uses in one of the film's most memorable fights that umbrella kind of becomes his like weapon of choice throughout the series he uses it multiple times mm. and then 13th ant who you know and specifically that kind of will they won't they romance between 13th ant and, and wong fei hong is kind of the personification of this collision of east meets west west you know you've got 13th ant who has been educated in england she dresses like a westerner She's very progressive, very modern, whereas Wong is very traditional, uh, very reverent to the way things have always been. And this kind of becomes the overarching theme of this whole series. You know, Wong learning how to embrace the modern world while never abandoning his values. Like he still still holds on to his values, but he does learn to change with the times, you know, as, as much as he needs to. And this is kind of a far cry from that Wong Fei Hong who appeared in those earlier films. You know, that Wong was a philosopher steeped in traditional Chinese values. Uh, and, and as such, in 1991, the audiences in Hong Kong would have considered him kind of old fashioned. You know, he was considered old fashioned, as were this style of movie. But Choi made it a point to update the character from modern times. And he does this with other characters as well, you know, including 13th Ant, uh, who, as we said before, didn't exist in any of those earlier entries. But he also took characters from those earlier entries, like Bucktooth So, and kind of 
remolded them. You know, Bucktooth So is often mocked for his stutter in the old series. Like, it's just part of his character. He's got a stutter. But here, Choi gives him a whole backstory. You know, he's an American-born Chinese who speaks perfectly fluent English, and he only stutters when he's trying to trying to speak in Cantonese. You know, mm-hmm. that that becomes part of his character. It's it's a it's a really neat change, I think. There was one writer that I read when researching this, a guy named Sean Gilman. Uh, he was writing on, um, it was a, a publication called The Chinese Cinema, but it was on Medium. Uh, I, I found this, and he he added some really great insight into this aspect of the series. You know, he described Jet Li's Wong as, quote, both youthful and wise, a serious young man with a code, benefiting the ideal. He always seeks to avoid conflict and violence, but when trouble breaks out, he carries himself with supreme confidence. He's the greatest fighter in any room and he knows it, but he takes no joy in it. And similarly, no anger, uh, which I think is a great summation of, of that character, at least as portrayed by, by Jet Li. Mm. And this guy, this writer, he goes on to point out how towards the end of the film, when the Americans start shooting in the theater during the gang attack, you know, it's a great, great scene there by the waterfront. Uh, Lee, who, uh, you know, he's been using Hungar style moves. He abandons that. Hungar is a Southern China fighting style. And Jet Li starts incorporating his own elements of his own Northern Chinese wushu training. And of course, not being an expert in the martial arts styles, if I had not read this, I would have never known it or noticed it, you know, because he looks like a badass the whole movie to me, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the way the way that this guy contextualizes this in writing, he says that, you know, this presents Wong as not only a symbol of Southern China, but by blending Southern and Northern styles, he becomes a hero for the nation as a whole. And he goes on, Gilman goes on to write that, uh, quote, Wong reconfigures the conflicts of imperialism, turning a political attack against Western racism and aggression into a moral tale of justice and righteousness, where color and national origin are deemed irrelevant in favor of the content of one's character. But, you know, like I said, this stuff's great and fun, uh, but it's, it's not necessary to enjoy the movie. Although I do think if you don't know this, the about, if, you, if you're completely clueless to like, the history behind the British occupation of Hong Kong, you'd, you'd probably be a little bit lost on a lot of what happens in the film. Mm. Uh, so that does allow you to appreciate the film to its fullest. But I think that none of this historical context and political allegory, none of this shit would matter if the film didn't work first as a martial arts spectacle. Uh, and luckily, at least in my opinion, I think it soars on that front. Uh, so I, I want to ask you guys, like, what did you think? Had you either of you guys seen this film prior to this? No, this is a first viewing for me. First time viewing. Yeah, same. Okay, yeah, so that, I, that's, I had never seen it. Uh, obviously, so you guys were like me, introduced to Jet Li um, through his American movies, probably Lethal, lethal Weapon, Lethal 4. Weapon Four, <laughs> probably yeah. Lethal Weapon Four. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and if not Lethal Weapon Four, Romeo Must Die would yeah, have probably been, been <laughs> it. You know. So, so you guys were obviously very aware of Jet Li by this point. I mean, he's been making American movies since the late. 90s mm-hmm. uh lethal weapon 4 was late 90s as was romeo must die um so what was it like going back to, have, have you seen many of his other films that were produced in china outside of this mm-hmm. one no or have you, nothing, are you mostly familiar with his american stuff I, yeah mostly his american stuff yeah hero fearless yeah. any of those black mask 
I was going to say, we saw, I think you and I saw Hero in uh, the theater together. We did, uh, yeah, we did. Or no, like, no, actually, I think you had it on DVD from like a Chinese. I had imported it, yeah, before yeah. it came out in the theater here. Yeah, I and remember then, we, because we watched it at your house, and uh, and the ending is different. Like the words that they say are, are different. It's What's, different like, than what is, was released here. Yeah, what was released here is propaganda. But yeah, <laughs> and uh, but no, but but I, I did that. I have my other memory of Jet Li is that uh, he does. Oh God, which which Bruce Lee movie is it? He does a remake of uh, the Big Boss, Way of the Dragon. No, maybe maybe it's not a Bruce Lee. Maybe I'm thinking of something like Fist of Legend or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, one time when I delivered pizza for Papa John's, uh, this guy, he, uh, I, I delivered his pizza to him, and he was like living in this townhome, and I took it there, and he was like, uh, he like took the pizza, and he was like, "Hey, brother, do you know Jet Li?" And I was like, "Yeah, I've heard of Jet Li." And he was like, "Man, I'm watching." Uh, I, it must have been like uh, Fist of Legend or something. He's like, I'll watch Fist of Legend. You, you ever seen that? I'm like, no, I haven't seen that. He's like, come in, come in, dude. Come in to watch this. And like, I went <laughs> in to his house. Did you watch and it? He was like, and he wanted me to share pizza with him and watch Fist of Legend. I sat with him for a little bit, but I was like, I'm going to get fired if I don't go back. So I'm just going <laughs> to, but it was like, he just really wanted me to hang out and watch it with him. He just so I'll never forget that. I mean, it is more fun <laughs> watching that kind of movie with friends who you can like freak out over, you know? Yeah, but well, but anyway, yeah. I, <laughs> this is the first time I see something like this with Jet Li, and it was cool to see like more of his uh, his roots, like uh, where where he originally came from, like as far as uh, cinema goes. And uh, yeah. I don't know, I, I I did enjoy it that way. And, and everything you were saying, by the way, is is true. Like it, it works on its own, uh, right? Which I think is important. Um, I I still left it even after doing some of this. I feel like there's levels of cultural stuff in this movie that I'm just. I still don't have my head around. Oh, I agree. Missed. I mean, and, and yeah. you, and you probably never will and never could, unless you grew up in Hong Kong or in China, uh, or you like majored in Chinese studies or something like that, you know, like, uh, cause it's, it's a highly complicated history. So what we, what we've said is just like the tip of the iceberg, like just enough to like, give you enough context to understand where the film is coming from. You know, uh, like I said, this is not a history podcast. It's a film history podcast, but it's not a history podcast, but we do think that obviously history can inform film history. And it's important to know where that intersects at times. Uh, but you're right. I mean, it does still need to function as a, an adventure as a martial arts movie. Um, sometimes as a comedy, sometimes as a romance, like it's, it's, it's got, it's, uh, hands in a lot of pies you know as far as as far as genre goes but how do you think it worked as a pure spectacle martial arts you know adventure and how did you feel seeing basically seeing Jet Li become a movie star which is what's happening here yeah I think for me that was I and I, and I think for most American audiences that's what you're gonna look for is like uh the spectacle of the movie first and yeah. uh and i think it pulls that off there's like some cool stuff. i mean just right from the very start where he's doing the lion dance and just like doing the weird balancing act on the the ropes and stuff like that yeah. like that just it was just neat stuff and so that's kind of why why i would buy into this movie in the first place the other stuff for for i mean i'm just being honest as a western audience would be like the most important is i want to see gently do cool stuff do cool, right yeah, gently yeah stuff sure 
watch Jet Li kick people. That's what that's what we <laughs> bought the ticket for. Right. <laughs> How about you, Todd? So honestly, I'm kind of torn about this uh, because, you know, to kind of pull the curtain back a little bit for the listeners, you know, obviously we do a lot of research goes into this, a lot of preparation, a lot of planning. Um, and I actually started putting together my notes uh, on the life of Wong Fei Hung uh, long before this recording. And so I think because I had not seen um, because I had not seen the movie, I was going into it pretty cold into the life of Wong Fei Hung. So I read all the stuff about his wives, his kids, the hospital, the training, his involvement with the government and a lot of that stuff. And by the end of my research on that, I was like, wow, this guy had a, an amazing, uh, very colorful, very story filled life. So I think I think actually reading into Wong Fei Hung for me set the bar pretty high in terms of what I was expecting. I think I was expecting some sort of almost more historically accurate. I don't know that I was expecting the, is it Wushu, the, the Wushu aspect, yeah. uh, the fantasy element. I don't know that I was expecting that. I think I was expecting more of, historical accuracy coupled with awesome martial arts. What I got was the fantasy element with a little bit of history here and there and martial arts. So I think I was, I was prepared for a different movie. <laughs> that being said, I did enjoy it. Um, but I think I was wanting something else out of it. It's like when you, it's like when you see a trailer for a movie and the mo the movie's not great, but the trailer like really sells it on something. <laughs> it's kind of like that where the story of Wong Fei Hung sold me this particular story. And then I got a different version of that story, a different presentation of that story. So I, I wasn't expecting it. Um, but I, well, I should like be a fair pick or something. It sounds like, like a, yeah, like I think I was expecting more of a biopic rather than the adventure aspect. Well, um, to be fair, that's on you for creating those expectations for yourself. I, yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not trying to blame the movie. I'm yeah, saying yeah. like, because of my research, this, is, this, this, it set, I set myself up for, well, for you, something you were, else. <laughs> you were expecting Ip Man. Yeah. Yeah. Is That's what it, it sounds like, which yeah. is a little more, which I don't know how historically accurate that is, but I think it's a considerably more than this. But Ip Man also was not a folk hero. Like, uh, you know, Wong Fei Hong was a folk hero or is a right. folk hero who, like, the historical man that lived mm. is barely the basis of any of the legends right. of Wong Fei Hong. You know, yeah. like, Drunken Master, that didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you know and that's one of the most famous portrayals of that character and that that certainly didn't happen i mean but he he, they, it's like they just kind of use this character because he's well known and they just create all these adventures for him mm -hmm. uh like we said or like robin hood you know like mm -hmm. characters mm -hmm. like that uh or billy the kid you know there have been i mean billy the kid did not travel through time with bill s preston esquire <laughs> uh in the 1980s uh but he was a character that was used because in that film because he was 
a name that you know a, a historical character that people are going to recognize mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. uh, and that's kind of how Wong Fei Hong I think is used in these films it's not nece- and and granted there is historical context in some of these films especially part 2 are set during real moments in history mm-hmm. uh but they ne- it never quite gets to the f- point where like he's they're not forest gumping him to where they're like inserting him into like making him change history in ways like Forrest Gump did, you right, know? Right, right. <laughs> um, they're not quite doing that to him, but they are putting him in real situations and and inserting him into history in places where he actually wasn't, uh, or he he didn't play a part things that he didn't actually play a part in. Uh, but I don't know. I think I think well. Well, then from this point, then Todd, uh, keeping aside your um expectations as just a martial arts film forget that it's about wong fei hong okay what do we what do we think of it in terms of fight choreography jet lee's performance things like that well when you see names like jet lee yan wu ping come up in the come up in the credits you're like all right you know you're in for something yeah yeah yeah. yeah, this is gonna be a wild ride (laughs) right so all of my expectations were met um in terms of the martial arts spectacle Mm-hmm. Um, we've already talked about the iconic ladder fight. Oh, so good. <laughs> yeah. I was just kind of, cause when it started, I was just kind of like, oh, okay, this is cool. And it just kept ramping up. Yeah, like it keeps it, going. Like, I was yeah. like, okay, the, this is probably the peak. We're going to start the decline now. Nope. Nope. We're going up another level. Okay. Here we go. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was an absolute blast. I, I really enjoyed the aspect of approaching a martial arts master and basically having to plead to become their student. Yeah. I I think a lot of that is lost on Americans, you know, Mm -hmm. who have maybe sort of a cursory knowledge of martial arts in terms of like karate kid, where you show up to a school, you sign up for the monthly thing. Right. I mean, the only reason that I have context for that, is because I watched a lot of martial arts movies that were produced in Hong Kong and and they portray stuff like that. But yeah, I, I know what you mean. Like you you think of like people in America think of martial arts as hey, I'm gonna sign up and show up to this you know, strip mall. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. And for a large part of martial arts practitioners in this country, that is exactly how it starts. Which uh, yeah, which is fine. It's a different yeah. culture, but yeah, in this it's like being accepted is a big deal, and that that's yeah. part of what. Um, Yun Bao's character is, you know, mm-hmm. like he, that's how he kind of gets in into it. Uh, but he, by the way, has a great fight scene when, when uh, his, he's got like one big fight. It's like solo fight mm. uh, when he's at the theater, you know, and all the guys yeah. show up and it's, yes. oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, it, it, that's like, that really, that's the only time in the film that you, I think you really get to see how good he is. Mm-hmm. You know, that's when he really gets to show off, but it's a great, great fight scene. Yeah. There's, there's this aspect that, uh, you know, it's a part, it's a part of that tradition that's kind of gotten pushed aside for the punching kicking aspect. And it's the right. idea of this person knows a lot more than you. I, it's, you know, over the break, over the holidays, I turned 40. And when I came back, you old fuck. I know, right? Gross. And trust me, <laughs> I never feel it any more than when I'm in the karate school because every, <laughs> everything hurts and I'm training with a bunch of 17-year-old people who are made out of rubber. Uh, but at the same time, I've had the experience of fighting, uh, you know, quite a few people from from around the world. I've also had the mar- um, the law enforcement training 
Um, but I've also lived a life. So while, yeah, they can probably kick me in the head and I'm doing well to kick at their waist in a knockdown drag out fight, I have the knowledge, I have the experience, I have the drive, I have all of those other things that makes, that gives me an advantage. So there's that aspect of, yeah, you might be younger, faster, all of these things, but you don't have, you don't have that extra something that this master can give you. And I think this kind of shows that a lot because in addition to it being a martial arts school, I think in a lot of films, at least a lot of films that uh, come to my mind, it's always a school, but this was basically, yeah, it's a school, but it's also a hospital. Like right. I have, he's like, I have patients here. Like I have, I have injured, I have wounded. Like I'm, I'm helping these people. I think, I think similarly why like Milfport is so popular. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Leave it to Gary. <laughs> so I, what? I'm trying to participate in the conversation. <laughs> You're doing a great job. Todd, <laughs> how long do you think you would last in a uh, fight against Jet Li? Oh God, uh, I I'd probably be halfway through my introduction of threatening sentence <laughs> before I realized I'm swallowing my own teeth. <laughs> I feel but, like Jet Li would wait for you. He would he would wait for you to yeah, throw yes, out of courtesy. He absolutely would. He'd, he'd take a look at my gut. He'd hear me breathing heavily before I got out of the car. <laughs> and then he'd say, I'm not going to fight this guy. That seems <laughs> seems unfair. Although I, I will say this, like, as, I mean, being because I, I started when I was 11 and I trained till I was I trained regularly till I was in my mid twenties, um, did I think four or five different world championships along in that time period. But then I got into law enforcement and from in that early period, I was very focused on the, the correctness of the techniques and the point sparring aspect and, and all of that stuff. When I rejoined the school after seven years in law enforcement, my style had shifted where I had blended the the fighting um, strategies with the techniques that I knew. And so my style ended up becoming more of a martial artist bar barroom brawler. Whereas a lot of guys will, you know, start peppering people with kicks. I'm inclined to just grab you and throw you into your partner. So... <laughs> But well, I, you do see that kind of stuff a lot, though, because I I, I just watched a movie the other day um, called Flashpoint with mm. uh, with Donnie Yen, and in the and he plays a cop in it. It's set in like modern, well, it's set in the nineties. Nice, but at the end, he uh, he's got this one of the best fight scenes I've ever seen uh, between him and Colin Chow, who was in the Matrix sequels. You know, okay, yeah, yeah, uh, and they have a fight that it's very like it's Donnie Yen you know, who obviously a martial artist, but mm-hmm. also incorporating a lot of like MMA style stuff yeah. in it. Like it, you see him incorporating a lot of th- that you've never seen him do before. At least I've never seen him do before. And it's a very cool combination. Uh, like it's really cool to watch. And honestly, like uh, go watch flashpoint, uh, another 
highly highly recommended well, martial arts movie. Um, you mentioned the the female martial artist who studied the close quarters, uh, the close quarters combat. Gary, was it you that mentioned that? That was yeah, uh, yeah. Wong Fei Hong's fourth wife. Yeah, his fourth wife. Yeah, it was it, it die. I think was the name of the. It made me think of uh, Casey Method, which is used uh, noticeably in uh, the Bat- uh, Batman Begins as well as Mission Impossible Three. So it's huh. a lot. It's a lot of elbows and it's a yeah, lot yeah, yeah. of knees, and it's primarily used in barroom brawls because you're allowed. You're you're basically defending and attacking. That's what Tom Cruise is time. doing when he's got the explosive in his head. Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> it's a way. It's a way for them to. So he's holding his head and fighting he's with hold, his elbows. He's holding his yeah. head, but if you look at KC Method fighters, they actually are have their hands like around their head like that. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, it's it's a really fascinating um it's a really fascinating martial arts form. There's some Russian stuff out there too that is is really great and I'm blanking on the name right now, but uh, Boxing. you know some <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> good at that. I've seen Rocky 4. It's more of a I... it's more of a stomping. It's like a stomping based type of martial arts which is uh, again another fascinating aspect to focus on but yeah i i also apologize that just for anybody for the uh martial arty acts that are going to come after me ditta was not the close quarter combat i had to look that up it was more that was a an extra like medical technique that she also knew that uh, uh oh. it was about bone setting and such or something but hmm. anyway just well, to clarify it, that so when once Upon a Time in China was released in Hong Kong. It wasn't called Once Upon a Time in China. Uh, it was Its title kept in line with the classic Wong Fei Hong films, which were all just kind of called Wong Fei Hong, blah, 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 you know, something. Uh, so, like, you've got Wong Fei Hong on the Rainbow Bridge or Wong Fei Hong's Battle with Bullies in the Boxing Ring, which is a very long title. Uh, Wong Fei Hong was trapped in the Dark Inferno. That one sounds pretty cool. Like, they, those are, like, the names, right? So Wong Fei Hong was kind of the brand name. And Choi Hawk continued that tradition, naming his film. This movie, when it came out in Hong Kong, it was just called Wong Fei Hong. And then the second one was called Wong Fei Hong 2, Wong Fei Hong 3. That was just the title of the series. Uh, So, you know, when he created Wong Fei Hong, Once Upon a Time in China, he did so with the intention of this becoming an ongoing saga following Wong's adventures. And, of course, the success of Once Upon a Time in China guaranteed that he would be able to do so. Within eight months of this film's release, the second film in Choi Hawk's Wong Fei Hong series was released in Hong Kong, followed less than a year later by a third, then a fourth, then a fifth, all released between 1991 and 1994. Jeez. Yeah. And we'll discuss these sequels more in an upcoming bonus episode, but it should be obvious that these films had an impact on China, both from a box office standpoint and culturally. You know, these, these films are credited for reviving this style of period martial arts film, which by the early 90s had been considered too old-fashioned for modern audiences. They also proved that Wong Fei Hong was still a character be, to be mined for stories, and he's gone on to be portrayed by the likes of Donnie Yen, Andy Lau, and even Sammo Hung himself. Of course, we all know how Jet Li's career went after Once Upon a Time in China. We've discussed it a little bit here, but you know he would go on to become one of the most popular martial artists, film stars of all time. Second, probably only to Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee himself. He made his American film debut debut as a villain in Lethal Weapon 4 back in 1998. 
Follow that up with his first Hollywood starring role, uh, which I've already mentioned a couple of times, Romeo Must Die in 2000, uh, co-starring Aaliyah. He would go on to bounce back and forth between making films in his homeland and appearing in popular Hollywood films like the Expendable series and uh, the classic Cradle to the Grave, co-starring uh, <laughs> starring DMX. Uh, as for Choi Hawk, he would continue his reign as one of Hong Kong's most dependable box office kings. Uh, in the late 90s, he attempted to translate the success to America by coming to Hollywood, where he directed two films starring Jean-Claude Van Damme, Double Team, uh, which co-stars Dennis Rodman, and Knock Off, uh, though neither were successful, and Choi found himself frustrated by the lack of artistic control that he was given on those films. So he soon returned to Hong Kong, where he continues to direct success successful films to this day including a couple of recent hits he had a movie uh that came out in 2021 called the battle at lake changjin uh, and then a sequel a year later the second one uh was the most expensive chinese film ever produced and also went on to become the highest grossing chinese film of all time made like 900 million dollars at the box office without being released in america but yeah so, so clearly he is uh still the steven spielberg of asia still making great movies uh, and that's it, guys. That's Once Upon a Time in China. Like we said, there is a whole series of these films, which we are going to be discussing later on. Uh, but for now, that's all I've got, unless you guys have anything else to talk about this series. Uh, we do, before we go, need to announce our next series, which we haven't done one since John Waters. So we need to announce what our next series is going to be. Uh, Gary, do you want to do the honors? No, I'm excited about this one because uh, for for a few different reasons, but uh, important ones are uh, that this is uh, I think these are movies that people are going to really dig jumping into and learning more yeah. about. And so too. Uh, also, we get to continue the Alien Saga. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> we, because we've done we've done one and two. Now we get to yeah. do part three. We might as well. Everyone's favorite. Now, now we're going to be talking about David. Fincher. David Fincher. We're going to be talking about the uh, kind of the first the first uh, arc of David Fincher's career, I guess you could say, starting with mm. Alien 3, uh, going all the way through like the mid 2000s is where we'll stop. Uh, we might, you know, like we might pick him back up later on, but we're going to do the first uh, kind of first decade and a half or so of his of his career, uh, starting with Alien 3. So be here uh, for that one in just a couple of weeks and watch along with us, of course. Watch all the versions of Alien 3. Well, there's, there's two. There's two. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's all we got for but this week, guys. They are very different for what They're it's worth. They actually different. are noticeably different. Very, very different. Yeah. So uh, where can you gentlemen be found on the internet? I am at this is Gary Horde. I'm working my way through the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order. On my show, the Computer Resume podcast, available now wherever you get your podcasts and on all the socials at Computer Resume. And I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, X, Instagram, Letterboxd, and D&D Beyond, as long as they behave themselves. You can find me at Justin underscore Bishop. You can find me there on Instagram, on Letterboxd. We've also got a Letterboxd for the podcast now. I saw so, that. Yeah, Letterboxd.com slash cinema underscore shock. Same as it is everywhere else. You can also find us at cinema underscore shock on, you know, Twitter, Instagram, all those things, threads, wherever you find us. Uh, until next week. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. Johnny has the keys. Oh, classic. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> well, you couldn't learn how to say that in Cantonese? Uh, I was very close.
if you're trying to get with your cousin, you know, like that's <laughs> just, I don't, now's not the time to deal with that. All right. Boy, that's a good, a good ending to that joke. We know how to really <laughs> we, we know how to really like just put a pause on this show. <laughs>